From the heartland of America and the gateway to the West, good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation, around the world. I'm George Norrie. This is Coast to Coast AM. Later tonight, investigative reporter Cheryl Jones joins us with Strange Stories, followed by Open Lines with Cheryl. And you know the new rule. You can call in on the guest who's the first two hours and open lines when we have them. So you'll be able to participate in both segments. Here's what's happening. An intensive manhunt underway right now for the suspect in Wednesday's shooting rampage at a bowling alley in a restaurant that left now 18 people dead, 13 injured in Lewiston, Maine. Law enforcement sources said a search of the suspect's last known address was conducted by FBI SWAT teams. Nothing found. 40-year-old Robert Card is facing an arrest warrant for eight counts of murder. That will go up as soon as they identify the other 10 bodies and should be considered armed and dangerous. He is a certified firearms instructor, member of the U.S. Army Reserves, has been put away in an institution for a couple weeks, claiming that he was hearing strange voices. U.S. military forces are maneuvering ships throughout the Middle East to amass one of the largest collections of warships in the region in decades, making its way halfway across the Atlantic Ocean. The USS Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group is moving toward a group of U.S. naval ships in the eastern Mediterranean and Middle East. Once there, it will make its way through the Suez Canal to the Persian Gulf. Keep our fingers crossed that nothing happens. The Israel Defense Forces will continue ground raids into Gaza in the coming days to prepare for the next stages of the war against Hamas. The IDF continues its strikes against Gaza from air and sea and is focusing on killing senior Hamas commanders and destroying Hamas infrastructure. Tai Chi may be a slowdown of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease for several years, according to a Chinese study. Those who practice the martial art twice a week had fewer complications and better quality of life than those who did not. Parkinson's is a progressive brain disease which leads to tremors and slow movement. Experts say the findings back up previous studies on the benefits of exercise for those with Parkinson's. Christian Wild from MyHeartBook.com is with us here. Christian, this is an amazing story. It really is, George. And put all of the medications aside because they haven't been working that well. And here they come along with a natural form of exercise, Tai Chi. Scientists admittedly at this time don't know They don't know much about how to totally remedy the symptoms of this devastating disease. So anything, anything that can help prolong the lives of our friends, our relatives, and ourselves is worth looking into. We may not realize it, George, but in the last few years, Parkinson's has claimed the lives of some of our favorite people, Linda Ronstadt, Muhammad Ali, former President George Bush, Pope John Paul, and, of course, everyone's favorite, Neil Diamond, whose music was silenced last October. And then there is, of course, Michael J. Fox. The new study findings from the Institutes of Health inform us that the Chinese exercise art form of martial arts, which we know as Tai Chi, has been found to offer benefit for Parkinson's patients in slowing associated symptoms in walking, talking, mental difficulties with memory, depression, and fatigue, 
And when we consider the credible source advising us, the institution, uh, we know that in controlling Parkinson's systems, uh, symptoms, it might be a long-awaited, welcomed news. Fantastic. Thank you, Christian. A type of bacterium never seen before in wild elephants has been found in the bodies of six African elephants that died in mysterious circumstances in Zimbabwe. Scientists think it was the cause of a blood poisoning that killed the animals in 2020. The study might provide more clues about the deaths of 356 elephants in neighboring Botswana that same year. Well, it's time for Kevin Randall, the retired lieutenant colonel, with his UFO updates. Kevin, what do you have for us, my friend? Well, good evening, George. Hi there. Uh, Congressional representatives Birchert and Luna have confirmed they have been granted access to a skiff. They should have access to classified information that David Grush provided months ago. The first skiff meeting happened today. On November 16th, a second skiff meeting is scheduled with the IG. I'm not sure what will come of this, but I'm not convinced that either Burchett or Luna will be fully cognizant of the independent research conducted by uh, UFO researchers such as Len Springfield, uh, which he termed crash, crash retrievals. And on October 17th of this year, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence released the 2023 Consolidated Annual Report on Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena. This is, of course, the unclassified version, but given what is in it, I suspect there isn't much of interest in the classified version, which we may never see. This report was only 15 pages, with the last two being a glossary of terms, one page devoted to a photograph that relates to the only case mentioned, one page with the details of that case, which has been resolved as a military observation of a commercial jet some 300 nautical miles from the platform, one page telling us the following is a case closure report. There is military observation of the airplane. There's two pages of pie charts, graphs, and a map of the world. And, of course, one page for a table of contents and one page for a cover sheet. Or, in other words, only six pages of material, and more than one of those pages contains a single paragraph or two. What we learn is that there have been 274 reports during the period of 31 August Uh, 2022 to 30 April 2023, and additional 17 reports that came from 2019 to 2022 that were not covered by the earlier investigations. I continue with this trivia reporting the mere presence of UAP represents a hazard to flight safety, though none of the reports indicated a UAP maneuvered in a way to endanger military or civilian aircraft. None of the reports can be attributed to foreign activities which would include alien craft, but they don't mention that. For those interested, 53% of the cases, there is no shape recorded, or I will assume the report was just of lights in the sky. 25 were of orbs, 6% were irregularly shaped, 4% were oval, 2% were rectangles or disks, and 1% each of cylinders and triangles. And 21% of the cases reported no lights. Under the assumptions, we learn Arrow recognizes that many reports are probably the result of sensor artifacts, equipment error, misidentifications, or misperceptions. As I say, the majority of the report dealt with material other than sighting investigations. The only sighting was from May 8th of this year. The location was western U.S., which certainly doesn't tell us where it was. The shape was described as oblong dots or lights, and the sensor data was listed as infrared. As I mentioned 
This case was resolved as an aircraft some 300 nautical miles away. There are literally hundreds of other sightings that do not make their way to Arrow. The National UFO Reporting Center keeps a good running total of the sightings. For example, on September 5th of this year, the witness was driving south on Interstate 15 near Payson, Utah, and saw a smooth, tic-tac-shaped object that was about the size of a helicopter. The witness said there were no propellers, wings, engines, tethers, or other identifiable features. The UFO was smooth white with two flat spots on the bottom of each end. The craft was about 100 feet above the ground, and according to the witness, the UFO did not move the whole time it was in sight, and the sighting lasted for about two minutes. That's what we have for tonight, George. All right, my friend. Thank you, Kevin. We'll talk to you next week. Up next, astrophysicist Adam Frank back with us after five years. His latest work is called The Little Book of Aliens. We're going to talk about his latest research on the existence of extraterrestrials next on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Adam Frank with us. Let me tell you a little bit about Adam. He's an astrophysicist and alien optimist is the Helen F. and Fred H. Gawain Professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Rochester in 2019. He became the principal investigator on NASA's first grant to study techno-signatures. Now, those are signs of advanced civilizations on other worlds, and his current work focuses on life in the universe, climate change, and the astrobiology of the Anthropocene. Frank was the co-founder of the National Public Radio's 13.7 Cosmos and the Culture blog, which ran for seven years and now co-runs with the 13.8 blog on TheBigThink.com. He's also the science advisor on Marvel's Doctor Strange. Adam, welcome back after five years. How have you been? I've been good, George. It's great to be back. Looking forward to the conversation. Me too. In the Little Book of Aliens, fantastic work. How How many planets do you think are out there that might have intelligent life yeah well i think you know that of course is the question we're going for is to figure that out but what i can tell you for sure right from the science is that um every star you see in the sky has a family of planets orbiting around it that is one of the first great revolutions in astrobiology and then the second thing we've learned is that if you count five of them One of them has a planet in the habitable zone or the Goldilocks zone, as it's called, where water can uh, exist as a liquid on the surface. And those are places where, you know, nature is running the experiment on whether you can form life and whether that life can go on to uh, become intelligent and build civilization. Now, what inspired you to write The Little Book of Aliens? Well, you know, after 30 years as an astronomer, you know, I've studied everything from how stars form to how they die. And then the last 15 years, I moved over into astrobiology, the study of life in the universe. And what I wanted people to understand is how close the scientific search for life in the universe, meaning looking at for alien life on alien worlds, how close we are to actually getting some real hard data. You know, people have been arguing about this for 2,000 years, and now finally we're like the last generation that, you know, may not know the answer to the question, or we're the first generation that's going to get the answer to that question. And, Adam, here's the $64,000 question. A lot of us, uh, yourself included, believe that there's intelligent life out there. But do you believe it has shown up here in the forms of craft UFOs, UAPs? Yeah, for as a scientist, I would say no, that the, the data, the kind of data 
that scientists need, that I need, or that I would be expected to provide in my own studies looking at alien worlds, that kind of data just doesn't exist. And we can talk more about that because I cover it in the book. Um, so that kind of uh, hard, verifiable, reproducible data for scientists just doesn't exist. Doesn't mean we can't get it, which is, you know, the interesting things that's happening with uh, the NASA's UAP panel. We can look to try and get data and see where it would lead us. But at this point, there's no reason for someone like me to believe that, you know, Earth skies are the place to look. What we should, where we should look and where we can look now is on the, in the skies of alien planets. And that blows my mind. Now, what are your thoughts, uh, Adam, as an astrophysicist on the Big Bang, first of all? How do you think all this started? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I just I had this New York Times article or uh, op-ed a couple about a month ago about you know sort of some of the challenges happening to the Big Bang, and you know I got a lot of feedback about that. You know, the the idea that the universe is expanding and that it's you know started off very hot and is been cooling ever since that's secure. There, there's really no way around that. But when we ask what happened, like what, how did that start? Where did it emerge from? That's the part we're really not sure. So we have amazing science on that tells us how the universe started as this super dense, super hot soup of subatomic particles and how the universe expanded and cooled and started to clump up to form stars and galaxies and eventually planets and, you know, for us people. Um, but that first moment, we still, we're still in the dark about where it came from, or even if we should ask whether there's an origin. Maybe it's always been there. So a cosmology is both, in the Big Bang is both amazing science, very secure science, and on the other hand, there's some really big open questions like, is there a multiverse or not? What do you think about that possibility? You know, I'm not a big fan of the multiverse just because, again, the, you know, in science we have these really brutal uh, requirements for a claim or, you know, having some evidence and then making a claim with that evidence. And right now, as much fun as the multiverse is as an idea, we don't really have any evidence for it. It's, it's a way of um, kind of explaining a theory we have, which is what's called inflation. It's a consequence of that theory, but it's a consequence with no observable, um, no observable uh, consequences yet. There's nothing, there's no way to prove it, and it may never be able to be proven. And so in that case, I'm like, yeah, you know, this is kind of wandering away from how, how science should work. Well, with Adam Frank, his new book is called The Little Book of Aliens. He also wrote one called Light of the Stars that came out in 2019. His website is linked up at coasttocoastam.com. Why do they call you the alien optimist? <laughs> well, you know, one of the things I do in the book is I want people to understand how old this question is, right? It, the, the question, are we alone? Are we the only place where life has formed? Maybe the oldest question human beings have asked. Because you can see the Greeks arguing over it. So, you know, in the beginning of the book, I talk about Aristotle and Democritus. And Aristotle was sure that, you know, we were the only place in the entire universe which would have uh, life. Um, and then, you know, a couple hundred years later, Democritus is like, no, you're wrong. And uh, Democritus was an, what's called an atomist. And they believed that, you know, the universe was made of atoms and that the atoms uh, were the same everywhere. So, therefore, there had to be other planets with other life. 
So we literally have been arguing about this uh, question for 2,500 years, including setting each other on fire occasionally. You know, uh, Giordano Bruno was actually burned at the stake for his belief oh, that's that there right. were other planets and other life, right? How did you get interested so, in this, Adam, yourself? I, you know, as a kid, when I was five years old, I stumbled into my dad's, I'll never forget this, into my dad's library. He was a writer, and he loved science fiction. And uh, the bottom row where I could reach were science fiction magazines that had those you know, amazing covers, like, you know, amazing stories, and yep. um, Isaac Asimov. And those covers, which had pictures of, you know, guys on, on, uh, riding on spaceships or walking around on alien planets and aliens, bug-eyed monsters, it just, that was it. Like, I was five years old, but I knew at that moment what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I'll always remember one of the covers of one of those magazines that had a spaceship in the background with a man and a woman running right towards you with a huge face with their mouths open, like they're being abducted and grabbed. Remember that one? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I saw that one, but I remember one with these guys on a space, you know, on the moon or on a moon, and they're like, you can see they're terrified, and behind them, you know, and they can't, is, is an alien chasing them. And that one, when I was like five or six years old, was like, that one really made an impression on me. Adam, we're friends with Seth Shostak from SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, the organization that is listening to see if there's any intelligent life out there. What do you think of the organization and the effort? Well, SETI, you know, what's interesting about SETI is that, and I cover this history a lot in the book, what people really don't realize was that when Frank Drake did that first experiment where he took a radio telescope and pointed it at two stars and listened for a month for signals, uh, that was the first ever in the history of humanity astrobiological search. You know, he may have been looking for intelligent life, but actually it was the, the first scientific search for any life at all. So SETI was the beginning of trying to formulate a scientific research program to ask questions about life in the universe. And the thing about SETI is that, you know, that idea of using radio and listening, we're still doing it, but now it's become part of something bigger, which is what I talk about in the book, and that's the research I'm involved in, which is called techno-signatures. We now have entirely different ways of looking for life on alien planets than listening for them, you know, sending us a signal. What do you think of Congress uh, in its efforts uh, recently? They just came out with a report, by the way, that kind of nullifies the fact that we think these are extraterrestrial craft. They kind of poo-pooed that. Yeah, well, again, you know, from the from as I say, from a scientific perspective, there hasn't been the kind of data. There still doesn't exist the kind of data that I would need to be able to, you know, link the claim uh, that these things are, you know, not from Earth to the data we have. But what's interesting, I think, for the people who are, you know, are really excited about the idea of UAPs is that now with NASA getting involved, that NASA report that came out just a few months ago really kind of detailed, okay, here's what we need to do if we want to try and investigate in an agnostic way, right? You're not going to assume the answer. You just want to investigate the phenomena. Uh, The NASA report showed what a, report, what a uh, study would look like. And I have a whole chapter in the book where I go through, if you really want to get data about UAPs, a transparent, open investigation, like the same kind of thing we're doing when we look for techno-signatures or biosignatures, you know, I lay out what you'd have to do. 
All right. Well, stay with us, Adam. We're going to take a short break and come right back with you. Adam Frank with us as we talk about the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Now, he doesn't believe it's come here yet, but we'll be back with him in a moment. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. We're with astrophysicist Adam Frank. His book is called The Little Book of Aliens. We'll tell you in a moment where you can get it. It is marvelous. Adam, what do you think of the witnesses who testified several months ago before Congress? They seem very credible. They were pilots. And uh, what do you think? Well, you know, um, I've had really great conversations with Ryan Graves, one of the pilots. Yes. What I really like about uh, Ryan is that you know, he's very agnostic about what it is. Like, I like his attitude where he's like, this is what I saw. You know, I'm telling you, it, it didn't look like anything I've ever flown around with before. But I need you to figure it out, right? Somebody go figure it out. He's not, he's not going to a conclusion. He's just reporting what he saw. And, you know, I, I think uh, it's great that the pilots are able to talk about this without, you know, there any kind of um, uh, uh, stigma. So that's really good. But again, there's nothing, you know, that links, there's, there's no hard data that links what they saw because, you know, personal testimony, there's only, science can't really work with personal testimony. Um, so there's still nothing that links to the, uh, to the idea that they're, you know, they're non-human. And, you know, again, that's why it's, I support the NASA panel and doing that study. Uh, I do think, you know, there's a real possibility. For me, it's probably I'm, I'm more inclined to believe that this is going to be about um, uh, about national defense. And, I, you know, I, mm-hmm. in this book, I talk about the modern history of UAPs and, you know, where that's led so that people can understand sort of, yeah, where science, how science would look at this. Now, when it comes to the idea of the, of the alien craft in the garages, I got to say, as a scientist, you know, show me the spaceship. Until somebody shows me the spaceship and, you know, we can go bang around on it, they're, they're stories. And, you know, in the book I talk about in the 1950s, one of the first government reports ever done, Project Sign, um, there was uh, the, the head of it, Captain uh, Edward Rupert, wrote a, a book after he retired in the 50s where he said, oh, there was this report called The Estimate of the Situation that claimed there was evidence that UFOs were interplanetary, right? Because they didn't really think interstellar then. But, of course, that report was never found. People have dug around looking for that report. It was never found. So the idea that there, you know, the military has spaceships has been around forever. We've never really gotten anything from it. So, uh, you know, and for every military guy who says we have spaceships, there's another military guy who says there doesn't. And the problem is it's the government, right? And the government is a giant bureaucracy that good luck getting anything from them. So I think it's far more likely that we are going to have evidence of life, some kind of life, whether it's dumb life, meaning microbes or forests on alien planets via uh, what I call biosignatures or what are called biosignatures, or uh, smart life, technosignatures, on alien worlds before we find we really get anything from, you know, from finding anything about UAPs. Uh, hopefully that eventually we'll figure out what UAPs are, but we're so close to getting real data about alien life on alien planets. Adam, you're a scientist, so you don't guess, you don't speculate, but I'm going to ask you, <laughs> the pilots are seeing something that is something they never have seen before. They've told you that. What does your gut tell you that might be going on? Well, my gut tells me, because especially as I went back, uh, you know, I did this, uh, I did an op-ed for the New York Times when in the 2001 uh, about this, 
Uh, and I went back and I was doing lots of reading. And one of the things I stumbled on was the SIGINT uh, community, like the community of people from the signals intelligence and electronic intelligence community. And what was interesting, they had lively discussions about all of this, but none of it was about extraterrestrials. It was all, and this is where I learned the term, peer state adversaries. Uh, you know, um, other governments using drones using, it doesn't have to really be advanced technology. You can actually use simple technologies to spoof something looking like it's moving very fast. Uh, and you know, the United States did this itself. In the 19, late 1950s, Russia had built this giant radar. We wanted to know what that radar was capable of, of so we spoofed a signal into it to get the Russians to crank you know, the, the power up on it. And that's how we detected, that's how we understood what they were capable of. So if I had to take a guess, and again, like you said, I'm just speculating until we actually do the science, you know, uh, we, we don't know. Uh, but that's my speculation. But here's an interesting point, George. Imagine that we did do the science. Mm -hmm. And imagine that we found that these things were behaving in a way that no human craft could do. Like it was making a right-hand turn at, you know, at Mach 500. Uh, in the book, I discuss, well, what would be the next step, right? You would still have to do more science. Because if they don't land and announce themselves, now we found, wow, here's something that is moving in ways that we don't understand. But how, you know, that's, what do you do next? So you just have to do the next bit of science. So the interesting thing is having a, an agnostic approach to this means you're just following where the data leads. And every good question that's answered will lead to the next good question. Years ago, uh, I was at a conference. I go to a lot of them, uh, Adam, and uh, there was an individual there who's since passed on, but he would be, attend every event, and he would bring with him night vision goggles. His name was Ed Grimsley, mm -hmm. and he'd always sit next to me or producer Tom with a little paper bag in his lap, and I'm going, man, this doesn't feel right. This is just weird. <laughs> you know, I've seen this guy five times <laughs> At five different events, he sits close to us. He's got a bag on his lap. This just doesn't seem right, Tom. we got to figure out something here. Finally, he came up to us and reaches into the bag. And I, you know, I'm ready to jump the guy. And he, he pulls out night vision goggles and says, George, hi, Ed Grimsley. Would you come on the roof with me? And I went, no. <laughs> and he said, well, no, let me explain. I've got a group of people up there, and we're looking at UFOs with these night vision goggles. Would you come up there? And I said, how many people are up there? He said, about half a dozen. I said, okay, let's go. So we go up on the roof, and he gives me these night vision goggles at him. And I swear to God, I'm looking at objects in the sky that are not insects. They're not satellites. They're doing 90-degree angle turns, as you just mentioned, stopping and starting and they're way, way up there. Grimsley estimated 100, 200 miles up, perhaps. And there were little, tiny, little shiny dots just going zoop, stop, zoop, right-hand turn. I don't know what I saw, but something was up there. It was weird. Yeah, well, so this is the interesting thing about this, right? So, you know, I, could, I would never say to somebody, you didn't see what you saw, right? I wasn't there. I wasn't watching it. So I don't know, right? I, I can't answer that. But if we want, what we want with science from science is public knowledge, right? Something that we can all, the data is available. We can all agree on it. And so how would you get that kind of data 
about UAPs. And that's you know, one of the things I cover in the book. Like, what would a scientific search look like? And it turns out it looks a lot like the search that we're doing for alien planets. When we're looking for biosignatures and technosignatures, the same kind of standards of evidence that we have, the same kind of demand for knowing everything about your instrument uh, is going to be required for looking at UAPs, just like when we use the James Webb Space Telescope. So, for example, when my colleagues and I, if we were to ever report that we found, say, evidence for uh, city lights on a, on a world that was 40 light years away, people are going to come after us, right? Other scientists, I mean, you know, because we're, people have to understand how mean scientists are to each other for good reason. Right? <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, that we're, we're going to have to know everything about how the space telescope works. You know, we have to know how it receives light when it's 40 degrees, how it receives light when it's 80 degrees. And that's the only way that we're going to be able to answer that question. Same thing with UAPs. We're going to have to build instruments that we know everything about those instruments and we know everything about how we did the search. So that way we can all, you know, that data is there and everybody can look at it and come to the same conclusion. In your book, The Little Book of Aliens, you cite the Roswell crash of 1947 as a moment in history where the public became a little too obsessed with UFOs. Tell me about that. Well, I think the problem with, especially for you look at the effect on the, uh, the site, like SETI, as we talked about before, was that with something like uh, Roswell, you know, all the competing stories and the way it's built on, on itself, and particularly, you know, the hoax uh, surrounding, the, you know, those, the, the alien autopsy, because of what happened with the, the an as, aspects of the, you know, people who are of UFO culture, is that the, uh, the scientific search for um, extraterrestrials or, or you know, astrobiology got what we call the giggle factor, that anybody who, you know, any scientist who wanted to study life in the universe you know, other colleagues would raise their eyes and kind of giggle. And this really affected um, the funding for SETI. SETI, uh, their funding was cut off. Like, basically, there, there has been almost no SETI searching at all. People need to understand that. Because um, there, there was no funding in the 1980s and the 1990s when NASA tried to fund SETI. Congress people stood up and said, we're not going to use taxpayer dollars to look for little green men and UFOs. So that what happened from Roswell uh, really, and, and things like that, really colored the ability of scientists to, to investigate uh, the possibilities of life in the universe using telescopes and using, uh, you know, probes. But what's remarkable now is that that has really gone away. We've made so many amazing discoveries about exoplanets, about planets orbiting other stars, that NASA's now all in. And the next big telescope, people don't understand this, the next big telescope that NASA's going to build, you know, billion-dollar telescope, is called the Habitable World Observatory. So it's tuned to finding life on distant worlds. That's a huge milestone. And you know, one of the things I want people to understand from the book is how close we are and how we're going to do it, this idea of finding city lights or finding evidence of uh, biospheres because oxygen in an atmosphere. We can literally look into alien atmospheres and sniff out their chemical composition and use that to detect life. Are you amazed at the progress we're making right now, trying to inch for, towards getting the answers to these questions? George, I am, I am uh, more than amazed. I'm stunned. Because, you know, I, when I was coming up as a graduate student in the late 80s, 
We didn't even know whether there were any planets out there other than our own. True. It was entirely possible that we were there. The, the eight planets in our solar system, and don't start with me about Pluto, <laughs> were the only ones. Huh. And now we know every star in the sky has planets. When I was 15, though, I told my science teacher in school that there were planets teeming throughout the universe. And he kept saying, how do you know this, George? And I said, because the model of what happened in our solar system is the same throughout the universe. Now, I was a kid without any data, without any scientific fact, but I just, my gut told me they're everywhere, and I'm right. Right, that you were, you were right. And and the thing is, in 1988, or say 1985, when I started graduate school, we didn't know whether there were any other planets, and now we know that there are, you know, billions upon billions upon billions of planets. And even more exciting, we know how to look at those planets, how to look into their atmospheres to find evidence of life. You know what's an interesting thing that we've learned, though, also? I talk about all the different kinds of planets that we found. The most common kind of planet in the universe is one that's not in our solar system, right? Our solar system is not average. It's that's right. kind of weird. If, if you were an alien on another planet in a different solar system, looking at planet Earth with the technology you might possess— what would you conclude? Yeah, this is an interesting idea that the, uh, the Earth has shown biosignatures. The Earth has had these signatures of a biosphere, you know, either microbial or about a half a billion years ago. That's when uh, uh, multicellular creatures started to evolve on Earth. The Earth has been showing biosignatures for about three billion years. Now, our technosignatures are new. It's only been probably in the last, hundred years that we are showing uh, techno signatures. So you'd have to be within a hundred light years of us to be able to detect our radio signatures or the atmospheric pollution that we put in. But, you know, certainly Earth has been been visible as an inhabited world by just, you know, uh, 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 non-intelligent life for at least three billion years. Tell us about NASA's techno signatures research program you're part of. Yeah, so this is a wonderful story. So as I said, you know, NASA had really gotten out of the life business, or at least the intelligent life business, for quite a long time. And in 19, or sorry, in, in 2018, there were in Congress, someone in Congress put in a bill that said NASA should fund the search for techno signatures, right? And so NASA was like, uh, okay. So they convened a meeting that brought us, you know, the people who were interested in it together. And we had this amazing three-day meeting, and NASA was like, look, if we get this money, what should we do with it? And it was the most amazing three days of just you know, exploring all kinds of ideas, trying to figure out which ideas were the best, which were the most likely to produce uh, some kind of return. So we talked about things like city lights. Would you be able to see artificial illumination on the you know, dark side of a planet from 40 light years away? Would you be able to see atmospheric chemicals, you know, industrial mm-hmm. chemicals from 40 light years away? And from that meeting, a group of uh, collaborators and I put in a grant to study atmospheric technosignatures. It was the first ever grant like that, and we got it. And now since 2019, we have been writing papers and studying the possibilities for how we might find uh, alien civilizations on alien planets. Oh, that's great. Can you conclude that there's water on these planets? 
Not yet, but that's coming very, very, very soon. There was recently, uh, just about a month ago, the James Webb Space Telescope looked at, and this is really exciting, George, an entirely new class of habitable worlds, what they call a Hycean world, hydrogen ocean world. And this is a world that is much bigger than the Earth, like probably eight times the mass of the Earth. But it, it has a hydrogen, just pure hydrogen atmosphere and a liquid water uh, ocean, liquid ocean underneath the hydrogen atmosphere. And the James Webb Space Telescope was able to detect both methane and carbon dioxide wow. in the atmosphere in a way that told us that, yeah, this is, there probably is, or at least it's likely, there's a, a, a liquid ocean down there. And where there's liquid water, George, there's, you know, good chance that maybe life happens. Where do folks get the little book of aliens? Uh, wherever they, wherever fine books are sold, you can find it on, uh, you know, anywhere you go online uh, or also in any bookstores. And on my website, adamfrankscience.com, you can, there's a page there where you can order the book. Super. We're going to come back in a moment with you, Adam, and open up the phone lines, giving our incredible listeners an opportunity to ask you a question about what we're talking about. Adam Frank with us, astrophysicist. The book is called The Little Book of Aliens. His website Linked up at coasttocoastam.com. The lines are open.